If you've got a Bible this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 139 together. Psalm 139. The text will be on the screen behind me as we read it. If you want to follow along there, if you don't have a copy in front of you, but if you do have a copy in front of you, I just want to strongly encourage you, open the scriptures and follow as we read them and as we study them this morning. Psalm 139, we'll pick up reading in verse 1 and read the entire psalm together this morning. Psalm 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. In Daniel chapter 3, we find an interesting story of three young Hebrew men who were taken from Israel into Babylon in the Babylonian exile. And in Daniel chapter 1, when we meet them, we're told what their names are. When they arrived in Babylon, though, they were given new names. From birth, they were known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their names, right, all included a reference to Yahweh in some way, shape, or form. Hananiah meant God has been gracious. Mishael meant who is what God is. Or who is like the Lord. Azariah meant God. Yahweh has helped. But when they arrived in Babylon, the names they were given by the Babylonians were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is the names you probably know them by. 
Because each of these names no longer included the reference to Yahweh, but they included references to the Babylonian gods. The, Bab- the Babylonian gods. One commentator said this, What is certain is that anything that reminded them of their origin and destiny was removed and the change of the names given these young men. Instead of incorporating the Hebrew words for God, these names incorporated the Babylonian deities. You see, what was happening in Babylon when the officials changed the names of these young men was that they were attempting to recalibrate the identities of these Hebrews who had been taken into captivity. Listen, here's baseline what was going on. They were trying to cause them to rethink who they had always known themselves to be. To rethink who they'd always known themselves to be. And church, I want to tell you something. This is happening at an accelerated pace today in our culture, particularly in the area of gender identity. We're constantly inhaling an alternate reality, and its aim is to cause us to rethink who we've always known ourselves to be. For our children to rethink who they have always known themselves to be. And this alternate reality is aiming to reshape our identities. And it's doing so by aiming to undermine the influence of parents in the lives of their children. And the influence of pastors in the lives of communities. While simultaneously celebrating the stories of those who have courageously broke with convention to be their true selves. That they feel somewhere on the inside. Now listen, in her book entitled Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Now listen, parents, I would commend this book to you, but read it with the sermon. It's not coming from a Christian perspective. It's coming from the perspective of a Wall Street Journal uh, author, okay? Right, so you've got to read it with some discernment, but there's some helpful stuff in here. And I want you to hear what she says. I'm going to quote her at length in this introduction this morning, so I want you to bear with me. She says, when I think back to my own high school years in the 1990s, no one came out as trans. And until the last five years, that is precisely what the statistics for gender dysphoria would have predicted. Because the statistics say somewhere around 0.01% of the population wrestles with gender dysphoria. She says, that means you probably didn't go to high school with someone who, or with anyone who was trans either. But that doesn't mean that girls were a monolith, she says. Or that we all expressed girlishness in the same way. She says, I'd been a tomboy. Which basically meant I excelled at sports and preferred the comparatively straightforward company of boys. Friendships with girls, she says, often seemed unnervingly like breaking into a bank vault. All those invisible lasers shooting every which way, triggering alarms of sudden offense. But there is no such thing as a tomboy anymore, as any teenage girl will tell you. In its place is an endless litany of sexual and gender identities that are public, rigid, and confining. As as, as 16-year-old Riley, she says, a young woman who began identifying as a boy at 13 put it to me, I think being a masculine girl today is hard because they don't exist. They transition. Transition, that is, to boys. So what's driving this trend that we have seen explode over the course of the last 10 to 15 years? She continues, many of the adolescent girls who fall for the transgender craze lead upper middle class Gen Z lives. 
carefully tended by those for whom parent is an active verb, even a life's work. They are often stellar students. Until the transgender craze strikes, these adolescents are notable for their agreeableness, their companionability, and their utter lack of rebellion. They've never smoked a cigarette. They don't ever drink. They've also never been sexually active. Many have never had a kiss with a boy or a girl. According to one therapist that she quotes, whose practice is largely devoted to trans-identifying adolescents, he says many, she says many have never masturbated. Their bodies are a mystery to them, largely unknown. She says, but they are in pain. Lots of it. They are anxious and depressed. They are awkward and afraid. Like the infant that learns to avoid the edge of a bed, they sense the dangerous chasm lies between the unsteady girls they are and the glamorous women social media tells them they should be. And bridging that gap feels hopeless. She continues, the internet never gives them a day or even an hour of reprieve. They want to feel the highs and lows of teenage romance, but most of their life occurs on a phone. They try cutting. They dabble in anorexia. Parents rush them to psychiatrists who supply medications to pad their moods, like putting so much cotton batting onto a wound, which helps, unless feeling something is the point. Where is all the fun that should by right be theirs, they ask. They've heard their parents' stories. They've seen the movies. That epic road trip is hard to recreate. When few of your friends drive and parents prefer it that way. They could go to the mall if it hadn't closed down. And if teenagers still went to the mall, which by the way, they don't. Local environments can't begin to compare with the labyrinth. Ingeniously customized and supplied by their phones. Now listen, I want to say something. Not everything can be traced back to smartphones, okay? All right? Smartphones perhaps only amplified the desires that were already inside. But there is a link between the advent of the smartphone and social media and the expression of the transgender movement, and it's undeniable. I want you to hear what she says again. The iPhone was released in 2007. By 2018, a decade later, 95% of teens had access to a smartphone and 45% reported being online, quote-unquote, almost constantly. Tumblr, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all very popular with teens, host a wide array of visual tutorials and pictorial inspiration to self-harm. Anorexia, or thinspiration as it's known. Cutting and suicide. Posting one's experience with any of these afflictions often changes or offers a chance to win hundreds, even thousands of followers. Anorexia, cutting, and suicide have spiked dramatically since the advent of the smartphone. And you might ask the question, why? Why? Listen to what she says. And this is the last quote. She says, teenage girlhood in America is practi practically synonymous with worry that one's body does not measure up. In eras prior, ideal beauty may have taken the form of a few girls in your class. The ones who could not help being beautiful. Leaning into their lockers, tossing their hair. And most inexplicable to me, she says, knowing when to smile and when to keep their mouth shut. But only a few members of my class were traditionally beautiful, something the rest of us grudgingly accepted. And even they weren't perfect. Not really. 
They were human, as so many of our always in-person interactions then confirm. They were messy and vulnerable. They were inclined to mortification and misstep, same as the rest of us. They wore too much perfume. Their smiles shone with braces. Puberty struck decisively and without warning. They bled through their jeans and sweated through their gym clothes. Social media personas, that is to say the friends most relevant to today's teens and with whom they spend their, most of their time, admit no such imperfections. Carefully curated and face-tuned, their photographs set a beauty standard no real girl can meet, and they sit constantly in a girl's pocket, feeding fears of inadequacy, fueling obsession over perceived flaws, all the while vastly exaggerating them. Now here's what she's saying, church. While girls, listen, and boys for that matter, okay, in every generation experience the discomfort with their bodies when they go through puberty. I experienced discomfort with my body when I went through puberty. You, no matter how long ago it was, experienced discomfort with your body whenever you went through puberty. But in this generation, with stories of transition so prevalent online, through social media, and being celebrated in the way that they are, when teens begin to experience biological and hormonal changes in their body, and they no longer feel comfortable in their skin. It begins to feel strange to them, weird to them, just like it felt to me and just like it felt to you whenever you went through puberty. The difference is they see stories of kids just like them who have transitioned, and they assume that must be the solution. Why do I feel so weird in my body? Because I was supposed to be a girl. Why do I feel so strange in my own skin? Because I was supposed to be a boy. Or maybe I wasn't supposed to be either one of them. And this is the cultural air that we're breathing. Day in, day out. And Psalm 139, church, it helps us breathe out, exhale, and speak to those currents in our culture and in the lives of our children. That's why we're in Psalm 139 this morning. Some of you may be like, well, you just chose that because the Supreme Court decided on Friday that it was going to strike down Roe, right? And Psalm 139, knitting together in the mother's room. Listen, this psalm has been on the preaching calendar since mid-April, okay? Right? Since mid-April. Moving to, to today. Because this is the cultural air we're breathing. Psalm 139 is a beautiful and fascinating psalm. It's almost unique among the collection of the psalms. The first 18 verses are perhaps the most beautiful poem ever written as they celebrate the truth that God knows everything, that God is everywhere, and that God can do anything. And David wrote these verses, listen, in the context of reflecting on our inability to hide any thought or any desire from God. His omniscience. Or our inability to flee from the presence of God, His omnipresence. In fact, David says that God was not only present at the beginning whenever He formed our first parents, but He has been present at every beginning, every life that is conceived in the womb. God is there. 
And then we move into verses 19 to 22, and we find what appears to be this imprecatory language, right? That's a big word. What does imprecatory mean? It means language that's calling down a curse upon God's enemies. As David calls on the Lord to wipe out the wicked, those who speak against God with malicious intent, and those who take God's name in vain. As one commentator said, the wicked are part of the society in which the psalmist lives, who by their moral and religious conduct oppose and ignore God. To be willfully an enemy of God is unthinkable to the psalmist, but the wicked are there. The embodiment of another way than the fear of the Lord, conditioning and endangering the whole society by their character. And David says, God, they are your enemies, and so they are my enemies. They're enemies to this way of life that leads to everlasting life. They are proponents of another way. Then in the last two verses, David calls on God and asks God to, on the basis of his knowledge, his presence, and his power, to search him and to test him to see if any of the influence of the wicked has manifested itself in his life and that God would lead him in the way everlasting. Not the way of opposing, not the way of ignoring, not the way of rebelling against God, but the way of life that is ordered by God's good design. Those who are casting seeds of doubt and deception and maligning God's good creation and taking God's name in vain by claiming to speak for God on the matter of gender identity in a way that is inconsistent with the revealed truth in both nature, biology, and scripture, theology, are enemies of God. Now I want you to hear me more clearly on this. They are not any more enemies of God than you or I were in our sin. They are not any more enemies of God than we were in our hard-heartedness or our greed or our critical spirit and judgmental attitude. They are not any more enemies of God than we were in our self-righteousness or in our moralism, but they are enemies of God. Because anyone who calls what God calls good, bad, and calls what God calls bad, good, is an enemy of his. So what does Psalm 139 say in response to this, to use Schreier's term, this transgender craze that is destroying our daughters, doing irreversible damage? This that we're breathing in every single day. There's three quick points I want to share with you this morning. And the first one is this. That if we're going to breathe out, breathe, exhale theology in light of the reality that we're breathing in. A part of the, ex, the, 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 the exhaling that we have to do as we exhale, we must praise our maker. Praise our maker. In verse 14, David says, I praise you. And then there's a little three-letter word. In the, in the text. And that little three-letter word is the word for. And whenever you see the word for in the Bible, I want you to think reasoned. I want you to think grounds. I want you to think foundations. In other words, David says, the grounds for which I praise you, the foundation of my praise to you, O God, the reason for which I lift my voice and give you praise is the truth that I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Now listen, these, David does not write these verses so that women's ministry in 2022 would have theme verses for their women's retreats. Okay? 
Now, they may apply there, but that is not why David's writing these verses. Because when David talks about being fearfully and wonderfully made, the word fearful in this context is a participle. You know what that means? It's a verbal adjective. It's describing how the main verb of the text is being accomplished. The main verb is made, right? It's created or formed. But how is it that we were made? David says it was fearfully, and that word literally means to cause astonishment and awe. Second, he says, we were wonderfully made. And in this context, again, the participle describing how God did what he did when he made us. And that word literally means something extraordinary. So you put these two together, and this is what you have, that every time a child is formed in a mother's womb, it is a miracle that causes astonishment and awe. It is something out of the ordinary. And listen, this is consistent with what we read about the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. That human beings were the crowning glory of God's creation. The highest of God's creation. Now listen, I want you to think of the most awe-inspiring and astonishing thing you have ever seen. Some of you may have traveled toward Alaska or toward the North Pole and seen the northern lights and seeing those flashing across the sky in all of their brilliance and beauty. You've seen the colors they produce, right? Or maybe, maybe you've, maybe you have been down into the Mariana Trench, or maybe you've just seen videos of it, okay? The lowest point on the face of the earth, right, where all these creatures live, some of which have yet to be stations, and the stars at night, or you see the snow-capped peaks, or you see a volcano erupting, you see all these astonishing things, old faithful rising every 23 minutes, right, whatever it is, right, keeps coming up and spewing. But listen, the most astonishing thing in all of creation is the miracle of a child being made in a mother's womb. And David said, God is present there. He's present there. He was not only present in the garden whenever, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me pause on that for a second. He was not only present in the garden, but he's present in the bedroom. He's present at the shower. He's present at the hospital. He's present every step of the way. And so David says, because I, I am a part of that crowning glory of your creation that was formed, that was made by you fearfully and wonderfully with awe and reverence extraordinarily. Then I will lift my voice and I will praise you. Listen, this is what we must learn to do to counter the reality we are inhaling is to exhale the theology that you have been fearfully and wonderfully made and then orient your life to give praise and glory and honor and worship to the one who made you. And if you're going to do that, there are two things I think this text teaches us about what we must do. First, we must embrace God's design. Embrace God's design. See, some of the greatest works of art in the world, church, are tapestries. You ever seen a tapestry before? It's kind of like the apocalypse tapestry. I think i got a picture of it up here. The apocalypse tapestry 
was woven in Paris, France between 1377 and 1382, okay? Before modern day sewing machines and manufacturing plants, okay? Imagine the number of master artisans who are working on this tapestry. Because this tapestry on display is 6 meters tall and 140 meters long. Just to give you a little perspective, that's almost two stories high. And that is the whole straightaway and half of the curve on a track. That's a long piece of cloth. But the way they created this was by taking various colors of threads and then weaving them together in such a way that they painted this picture that has been preserved for posterity and is on display in a museum as one of the greatest works of art the world has ever seen. And every tapestry that was ever created before the advent of modern machinery were essentially cloth paintings where master artisans took threads of various colors and wove them together to create this beautiful picture and piece of art. And David draws on this image in Psalm 139. And he says, this is exactly what God has done as the master artisan. He has knitted or woven us together. There are several places in our verses where David speaks of this. In verse 13, we read, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In verse 15, we read, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. In other words, God was not unaware of what was going on when you were formed. He was not busy doing something else. But he was present and he was active in the process, intimately and intricately involved in your formation. God, David says God has taken tissues. He's taken ligaments and tendons and muscles. He's taken organs and bone. And he's woven and knitted them together to form our bodies. And I say our bodies because David was not only saying you knitted together our first parents in the garden. When he takes the man and what does he do? He forms him from the dust of the earth. And then he takes the rib out of the side of the man and he what? He forms the woman and brings her to into existence. But David doesn't say you formed our first parents. David says you formed me. You formed me. I was knitted together. I was woven together. You saw. You were present. You were active whenever I was formed. And then in verse 16 we read, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. David says, God, you formed me, and then you formed all the days of my life. Not the soap opera, but the actual occasions and experiences of my life that I would encounter. David says, in the same way that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1 and brought order from chaos by His good design, David says, you saw me even before there was a discernible human being in the womb of my mother. You saw my unformed substance. David, I don't think he would have used these words, right? These are more modern scientific words, but I think he would agree with them. See, before the zygote, you know what a zygote is? Right? It's a fertilized egg. 
before the zygote grows into a blastocyst. You know what a blastocyst is? A rapidly dividing ball of cells, right? And the inner, inner wall of those cells becomes the embryo, and the outer wall becomes the area, the, the cells that protect and nourish that embryo. That's about the fifth or sixth day following fertilization. And before that blastocyst becomes that embryo and grows into a fetus and into a discernible human being, David says, God, you saw me, my unformed substance. Before there were pregnancy tests that could diagnose, before there were 2D and 3D sonograms where you could see your baby smiling, right? Before you see any of that, God saw. God saw. And at the moment of fertilization, listen. Your genetic makeup is complete, including your sex, because your gender depends upon what sperm fertilizes the egg at the moment of conception. Women generally have a genetic combination of XX and men of XY, so women are always providing the X, and men are providing either the X or the Y, and so when that sperm goes into the egg, at that moment, your sex, your gender, biologically is determined. And David says, God, you saw my unformed substance. You saw it. You ordained it. You were there. You were present. You were active. And then you formed every day of my life before I ever drew a breath. That God ordained, what this means is this, that God ordained the time in which you would be born. So listen, listen, students, children, it is not a mistake that you are living when you are living. He ordered every one of your days. It is not a mistake that I was born and grew up before the advent of smartphones. And it is not a mistake that you were born and are growing up in a generation of smartphones. It is not a mistake God ordained the time in which you will be born. God ordained the body that you will be born with. He was active and, imp- and present, forming you. Right? He just didn't make Adam and Eve and say, well, let's see what runs amok from them. But at every conception, every fertilization, he ordered the body that you would be born with he ordained the processes by which your body would change and you would get squirmy and squishy and feel very uncomfortable right when you get hair growing under your arms and your sweat starts to stink right you get all those things going on and you feel like this can't be real this can't be right God you must have meant something else then what you need to breathe out is the truth that God designed every cell of your body Every cell. He knew the discomfort that puberty would bring. He is not unaware of that. But he ordained the ways in which that discomfort would force you to look up and trust him for your identity and not look in and try to figure it out for yourself. If you and I are to praise our maker, we must embrace God's design. It means you're not an accident. God formed you, ordered your body, ordered your days, and ordained it all to make you look to him and trust in him and rely on him and have confidence in him and determine who you are on the basis of who he is. Embrace his design. Now, listen, what I'm not saying this morning 
is the feelings that you, some of you in this room may have, that your children may have, that your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews, some of you are like, why are you talking about this? You're just speaking into an echo chamber. I want to tell you something. I am not. I am not. I am not as so naive as to believe that there are not people in this room or listening online who are not struggling with this reality. And what I want to say is that while those feelings that you may have internally may be real, they are real feelings, they are not true. And what I mean by that is this, truth always conforms to nature and scripture. Always. So those are real feelings that you're having, but they are not true feelings because they don't conform to those things. And so even whenever your desires, your urges don't match the plumbing that God gave you whenever he, when that sperm entered into that egg and life began, then what you must learn to do is this second thing, is to entrust yourself to God's care. Entrust yourself to God's care. In verses 17 and 18, David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Now another translation, the New English translation, N-E-T, words verses 17 and 18 a little differently, and I think clarifies the meaning of those verses for us. Listen to what the net says. It says, how difficult is it for me to fathom your thoughts about me, O God? How vast is their sum total? If I tried to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. Now, I want you to think about what David says in those verses. Consider that thought for a moment. How amazing is it when David says, when I, I it, it's too much for me, God. It overwhelms me. It's so astounding to me, God. It is phenomenal to me, God. When I think about the number of thoughts that you have toward me, the number of thoughts that you had toward me whenever you were forming me in my mother's womb, the number of thoughts that you have toward me, God, whenever you saw my unformed substance, the number of thoughts that you had toward me, God, knowing everything that there is to know whenever you ordered my days, God, knowing all of your thoughts toward me, God, I cannot take it in. He says, if I were to try to count them, if I were to try to count them, he says, they would outnumber the grains of sand upon the earth. Have you ever been to the beach? Right? Just that one beach and walked upon the grains of sand. And you feel under your foot thousands of them at a time. And you look out and behold with your eyes, billions of them at a time. Now you take that and you multiply that by all the beaches on the face of the earth, not to include all the other sand-like soil everywhere that God has made. And David says, your thoughts about me and toward me, O God, would outnumber all of them. You know what that means? means he cares he cares that he was so involved in the process so we are not deists 
okay? You know what a deist is? Somebody believes that God created the world, and then he just stepped back and said, let's see what happens. Some of you say, well, of course he's not. But when it comes to, when it comes to the forming of every individual human life, sometimes that's our default position based upon the culture that we live in. But that God thoughtfully placed every cell of your body and thoughtfully ordained every day of your life. And David says, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. And so whenever those feelings and those urges, right, whenever you begin to feel, students, like something's wrong in here, the question is, are you going to look out? Are you going to look out and find the stories that are being celebrated within our culture? Or are you going to look in and try to discern all your desires for yourself? Or are you going to look up and say, God cares for me. His thoughts about me are more than the sand on the sea. And that's why I know that even whenever I feel a certain way inside, I can embrace God's design for me. Because I'm not an accident. I'm not a mistake. I was ordered and formed by God. But listen, not only that, but it's this body that God has given you. This body that God has given you for which Christ died. It's this body that God has given you that upon your faith and confidence in Him becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. It is this body, so that whenever David says in verse 14 that the works of God are wonderful to his soul, so he says in verse 14, he says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God, your works are wonderful to my soul. When David says that, remember that word wonderful? Same word, extraordinary extraordinary, then we can say like David that our soul, our living being, our life, our very self, our person, our desires and appetites, our emotions and passions, the depths of our personality, the ve our very sense of self. David says, it's there that I have this experiential knowledge of the truth that God formed me. And to me, that is extraordinary. It is wonderful to me. And so what David does is he rests content in who he is because God has made him. Wonderful are your works to me. Listen, some, of, some people may say, why are you talking about this issue? It's a political issue. Why are you bringing that up in the church? Listen, I have a disdain for politics in the church just as much as anyone else, but this is a biblical issue that has been politicized over the course of the last 10 years. Entrust yourselves to God's care. Not only did He create your body, but He redeemed it through the sending of His Son, and He indwells it by the power of His Spirit. And the person of his spirit. And trust yourself to his care. And embrace his design for you. It was by no accident. By no mistake. And then stand with David and say. Because. 
I'm a part of God's crowning glory in creation, fearfully and wonderfully made. I will praise my maker and I will breathe that out every day of my life to combat everything that I'm breathing in. So as we close this morning, do not believe the lie that you're not supposed to be what God has made you to be. You're exactly who God has ordained you to be, exactly where God has ordained you to be. Trust that by faith and cling to Him. Let's pray together. Father, today, I know that there are people in our community, young men and young women, and there may even be people, young men and young women in our church, who are wrestling with the issue of their identity. They're constantly breathing in an alternate reality that is being broadcast far and wide by the wicked. And Father, while we acknowledge that we were not any, or that they are not any more wicked than we were when we were in our sin, they still stand as your enemies. So God, may you save them. May you bring a new birth in their life. Where you open their eyes and their minds to the glory of Christ. And the distinction between us and you as our creator and we as your creation. That they would see that and they would embrace that and they would glory in that. And Father, for those who would cling to this alternate way, the way of the wicked, in their opposition and their defiance, to never turn to, to, to repentance, Father. We know that one day, they will stand before you, not only as their maker, but as their judge. But may you strike down every idol idolatry and ideology that raises itself up against you. in the lives of our children, in the lives of our grandchildren, in the lives of our nieces and nephews, in the lives of the kids on our block, the kids in our lives. May you help us, help them process the way that they feel about their bodies while constantly pointing them to the truth that you made them just as they are. And that they can entrust themselves to your care because you have never stopped thinking about the days you formed for them or the bodies that you formed for them. So Father, as we respond to your word this morning, help us to lift our voices and to praise our maker. And Father, I pray if there are any in this room or under the sound of my voice who are struggling with the tension they feel between what they see in the mirror and how they feel inside, I pray that they would voice that today. Not online in a forum where other people can fuel the fire, but in a safe space with parents 
in a safe space with grandparents, in a safe space with uncles and aunts, in a safe space with pastors who can love them and encourage them and plead for them in prayer. Father, may they not feel like they have to continue to suppress this in order to be accepted, but may they be able to articulate it and process it with people who love and care for them, not random strangers on the internet. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and for his sake and glory, amen. I invite you to stand this morning as we sing together, church.